Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. excited to see you at IDRS 2020 in a couple weeks. Just a couple of weeks. It's going to be so much fun. We've got a live show planned that is going to be so hilarious. I'm currently compiling our 500 plus survey responses for Family Feud. Thank you everyone so much for writing in so much that it is taking me forever. (laughs) together. (laughs) But your responses so far have been really funny. So (laughs) I appreciate reading them. And the really cool thing is IDRS has actually given us permission to videotape our live show. So we should be able to release that on our social media. So the people who cannot be in Tampa will be able to see Double Read Family Feud, our interview with Pedro Diaz. So uh, if you're feeling left out because you won't be able to be there, uh, we got your back. We'll be able to show you a little bit of the fun we've got planned. Yeah, a hundred percent. Plus it's going to be really fun to spend a week with you. So <laughs> I'm excited, but you know, the dish topic today has been on my mind because we're both playing at IDRS in addition to our live show. And so it is crunch time. And basically every spare minute I have at the camp, I have my horn to my face and I am practicing away. And, um, you know, it's really exciting and inspiring to prep for an upcoming big gig that you're excited about. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that also gets you thinking to time off and mm-hmm. our relationship to when not to play our instrument and when not to practice. So that's the topic of today's dish. When I was uh, taking my year off in between my master's and my doctorate, I, w- I took the year off because I had serious burnout. Like I almost changed careers. I was like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this, blah, blah, blah. You know, I talked about this before. I had a moment where I was just like... Questioning. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where do I go from here? And I wasn't practicing very much, but I was listening a lot. You know, I was listening to a lot of violinists and singers. Uh, I didn't have a lot of horn to the face time, but Mm -hmm. I was doing an unusual amount of listening for myself at that time of life. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a lesson with my teacher after, oh gosh, it was probably like October. And I hadn't really done a lot of good practicing since I had graduated in May. Mm -hmm. And I was super nervous to play for her. I thought for sure she was going to confirm all of my fears about my own playing. And then when I 
played for her, she said, I have never heard you sound this good. What are you doing? And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm considering going to nursing school. (laughs) She said, no, no, no. I think you need to go down this track because I mean, you have never sounded this good before. And I was like, oh, okay. And I think that was the turning point where I was just like, okay, maybe I can, you know, I'm finally getting somewhere. Maybe I can. And I think even though I didn't have the horn to my face, I was absorbing a lot from listening to so many different performers. So that's actually something that I stress in my teaching a lot is that you have to listen all the time. I think it's also really easy for focus to turn into overthinking. Oh, yeah. And that can be a really exhausting place to be mentally in your relationship to your instrument. And that balance is, you know, just something you kind of have to deal with and navigate on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And for the record, I am not saying that you should only listen and not practice (laughs) because I had a very long way to go after that. And I had a lot of rebuilding to do. Mm -hmm. But it was nice to know that I could come back to it after some time away. You know, a lot of times we feel like we have to be perfect and always say the perfect thing and be the perfect representation of a musician. But, you know, we're all in a relationship with our instruments. Absolutely. And relationships ebb and flow. You have Mm -hmm. times of intense love and just wanting to be in that relationship all the time. And then you have times where it's... It's less inspiring. And also, I think there's the danger since it's a relationship, you know, the way that you talk to yourself, the way that you interact with yourself while you're practicing, that can become very toxic. And that is something that really makes me nervous when I see it in students, because that was the toxic relationship that I had with my oboe and that I needed some time away from in order to start rebuilding. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of that coin is if this is our job, it can't be a, I don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there are definitely times that I'll be like, oh, I don't, I'm not necessarily in the mood to practice right now, but I know there's music on the stand and there's a gig coming up and it's like, well, Jackie, that's the difference between a hobby and a career. And it is your job to practice and it is your job to be prepared. And so again, it's one of those Uh, delicate balances that we're constantly navigating. And so something that has been really helpful to me, I've been pretty fortunate that I haven't experienced burnout. I'm sure most people would categorize me as a workaholic. So (laughs) it's possible. (laughs) um, I I do really get fed by doing uh, the work that I've chosen. So I don't necessarily have big picture ebb and flows throughout my uh, career, but what I do have is kind of um, the micro to that macro mm-hmm. where I have had a lot of success in planning time off. So saying, okay, I'm taking Sunday off from practicing. I'm not going to practice that day and planning out my time off or my days off or, okay, this vacation is coming up and I'm not going to take my instrument on this trip to visit family or, or whatnot. And so that practice guilt that we can experience sometimes, I feel like I've been able to avoid pretty successfully by planning ahead of time. And then it's not, oh, I should be practicing right now. It's like, no, you've, you've thought about how much time you can reasonably take off what you need. And Mm -hmm. this is the time to do that and to step away. Because when I was, especially a student, I would say, be gearing up for a recital and be really intense. And then the recital would happen and I'd be like, oh, you can take the day off a recital, which is true, but I would not snap back immediately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so a day off after the recital could easily turn into a couple days off after the recital could turn into losing my routine and my momentum. Yes. That would really frustrate me Mm -hmm. and kind of one step forward, two steps back. So for me, scheduling and planning my time off has been very instrumental, pun intended. Uh, (laughs) 
in maybe avoiding burnout, especially in, you know, a career where you're at least on my end, classroom teaching plus playing plus Mm -hmm. personal plus podcast plus all these different, you know. Yeah, that that idea probably would have been really helpful to me because I experienced so much guilt all the time. Most listeners know this already from, you know, past discussions that we've had, but, you know, I always felt I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind. And that comes with, if I don't practice, I'm even more behind. So it was actually very hard for me to plan time off and I would bring my oboe on vacations. So that would have been, you know, a mentality that I probably could have used that would have helped that like underlying guilt and perfectionism. Well, and I remember in Kristen Schillinger's interview, she talks about how she, because the bassoon is work, she will practice or be at work until five o'clock. And then when the workday is over, it's over. And I am not always able to achieve that, but I I do admire it because I think the other part of this is that we're not just musicians, we're human beings. That's right. And so fostering the part of yourself separate from your instrument and separate from your career and your goals is, is really important. You know, it's okay to take time with family. It's okay to take time to read a book. It's okay to take time to reconnect with yourself because uh, we're not just musical machines and like what you're talking mm-hmm. about, just practicing kind of looking over your shoulder. <laughs> and the, most of us chose this career because it's edifying to us and fulfilling. Okay. So, you know, time off can be a really important component in maintaining that and not having the pendulum swing the other way. Mm-hmm. We got a relevant message from Tim Gawklin who uh, sent, if I'm home and not touring, I'll give myself either Sunday or Saturday as a guilt-free non-practice day, kind of a keeping the Sabbath sort of thing. If I'm touring with Acropolis with multiple events, I'll take a day or two off from practicing to give myself some mental prep space for the following days of teaching at UNCO and so that I don't burn out before our next concert. Breaks are always good. That is such a good point that um, taking time off to help your teaching. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that thing of put the mask over your face before you put the mask over someone else's. Mm-hmm. If we are teachers, we want to be in a in our best musical headspace so that we can, you know, give that to our students. Mm-hmm. Sebastian said, after my recent recital, I took a week off from the oboe just to decompress. I admit I felt guilty, but it also started to help me connect and reconnect the dots mentally. I was able to have a few epiphanies, mental blocks that I wasn't able to tease out during the semester since it was crunch time. I think taking a break actually needs to be a part of my journey to oboe enlightenment. The reason might be it allows me to disconnect from my oboe physically so that when I do reconnect, there is that special spark of curiosity again that I had when I first started playing. Then from there, it can be easier to identify blockages, bad habits that I had been tolerating and was unaware of. This makes me realize that there should be a distinction between taking a break from the oboe and taking a break from music itself, which is kind of what you were saying. Am I practicing oboe technique or musicality, rhythm or intonation? Some things require the oboe and some don't. Since the oboe is really only a tool or avenue for expression, singing melodies or clapping rhythms can count as practice away from the oboe. That's a great point, Sebastian. That's a wonderful point. We got a message from Dylan who says, I've spent nearly a year away from serious practice. I felt burnout in the first year of my doctoral program. Very few opportunities to play music that I enjoyed existed throughout my graduate experience. Now I'm revisiting my old pedagogy notes on the basics from breathing, embouchure, posture, psyche, voicing, articulations, everything. In fact, I find this rebirth of bassoon in my life to be much more inspiring than when I was regularly gigging and teaching lessons. Yeah, I think this discussion is so important because hopefully, you know, we'd love to avoid burnout if possible. With that in mind, Mason says, my ideology is that I shouldn't practice if I'm in a position where good habits or progress won't happen. That's a really good point too. And as you become more and more of a professional, you learn how to put yourself in that mindset Mm. more and more. 
Well, and that's where some of the stuff we've talked about in previous episodes, like an inspiring book or listening to a recording that you find really inspiring Mm -hmm. or um, talking with a fellow musician who you have a lot of admiration for, calling up an old teacher. Hopefully we can uh, utilize tools with which to get ourselves out of it. Absolutely. 100% agree. I feel like this has been a really contemplative, smooth-talking episode of Double Red Dish. This has been pre-coffee, so that's why (laughs) my voice sounds lower than yours today. (laughs) That's true. Guys, this is what it sounds like when we record before 9 (laughs) a.m. So if you're like, wow, they seem really um, chill chill today. Yes. Mellow. This is very light 100.5. Mellow 101. (laughs) This has been your dish. Have a wonderful day, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) W-R-C-N. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or reed tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. You guys are going to love this interview coming up with Puchner artist Alexandri Silverio, whose latest CD is entitled Entre Mundos. So go ahead and find it on his website, alexandrisilverio.com. We are so happy to be talking to Alexandri Silverio, principal bassoon of the Sao Paulo State Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Alexandri. Oh, hello, Jackie and Gary. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. I'm a big fan of yours. And your, I already listened a lot to your podcast. It's, it's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. We're just as thrilled to talk to you. My first question is, can you take us back to the beginning and talk about how you got started playing the bassoon? I started with music when I was six years old because my father wanted at last one of his sons became a pianist. My father loves the piano. But unfortunately, he don't achieve this because my older brother, Marcelo, plays the clarinet. My sister, Andrea, plays the oboe. oboe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that guy. guy. I know. She, she was your student. <laughs> Andrea, if you're listening, I'm sending you kisses. <laughs> okay, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I played the bassoon. And all of us, we, we started with the piano. Because my father had no success, successful uh, to have a pianist at home, now my father is 
82 years old, and now he decided to study the piano. Wow. <laughs> he studied the piano. <laughs> yeah. But my brother Marcelo, he was very good on, on piano. Then he was a big influence for me. Yeah. And I would like to be like him because he was playing so many beautiful music and I would like to do the same. Then my father thought that and took me to the music school. But I was not good on the piano. I was not good. I, I studied the piano for two years. Then I stopped it because I had to practice too much the piano. Then I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was, maybe that was good because, because that I had a very common childhood. Yeah. Then some years later, I got back to my music studies, and I was around 12 or 13 years old, and I had a, I found a flute at home. Actually, not a flute, it was a recorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a super recorder. And then I tried to go out on this flute, and I noticed that I could play, I, I could identify the, the tones, and this flute was accomplishing a music chart, and I could read the music chart. Yeah, that was, of course, th- thanks to the piano. Eh? And I could, I could read both clashes. Eh? Mm-hmm. And that made me happy because I, I, not that I had talent in something. Then, then after that, my interest in music grew up. My family went to a Christian church, mm-hmm. and there was a small ensemble of flute and recorders, which be, just with young people and teenagers. Then mm-hmm. I started to play in this ensemble, and it helped me to develop a passion for the music. Mm-hmm. A lot of musicians here in Brazil comes from the church. That is very common. Right? Mm-hmm. And that was also my case. Right? Then I was very interest, interested in, in the flute. And yeah, I, I was looking for to know more flutists, more people playing the flute. Then I heard once in, in radio a recording of of Michala Petri. Do you know Michala Petri, eh? the virtuals of recording? No? <laughs> but she is very famous. Mm. And I was amazed for that sound and but I was I was not Complete happy, completely happy with the flute because it don't it doesn't have a big sound. I would like to play an instrument not too loud, but with a bigger sound. Eh? Eh, but I I didn't I was not clear what instrument should I should I play of, of a, I will if I would stay in the flute or not. Then one day I bought. Uh, vinyl, uh, a disc, né? of a recording of Michaela Petri playing a Telemann concerto for recorder and bassoon. Mm. But I didn't know what was a bassoon. Never heard before the bassoon. <laughs> then I bought this, this vinyl and I put it at home to listen to. Then I listened to the recording, then I, I heard for the first time, for the first time in my life, the, the bassoon. Eh? And I was amazed for that sound. They, oh my, my God, I want to play this instrument. That, that was, that was the sound that I'm looking for. Eh? And the interesting thing on this recording, is that the Klaus Tunemann was playing the bassoon. Mm-hmm. And yeah, after that, I, I started to, 
to, to study basson. I looked for a music school here in São Paulo, and there they had a, a basson, and I started to play the basson. I started to study the basson in this music school. Né? And you then went on to study with Klaus Tuneman, is that right? Yes, exactly. Many years later. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? I studied with Klaus Tuneman. It was in 1999. I, be I had a scholarship mm -hmm. to, stud to study in Germany. Yeah, that was money from Brazil. I, it was a music competition. I won this. And yeah, they gave they gave me money to study there. But I should to make an audition to study with Klaus Tuneman. It was not only the scholarship from Brazil. I had to do an, an audition there. Yeah, and try. Then I won the audition too. It was just one one place for for to study with me. And yeah, I had this successful. Oh, so there was only one spot open, and you won the spot, and you won the scholarship? Exactly. That's exactly. amazing. Yes, exactly. I was so happy, because he was the, the my hero, my mm -hmm. bassoon, bassoon hero, the, the man that played the, the, the bassoon in this recording that I was total crazy about. To have class with him was an, an amazing experience. Amazing opportunity. I was very happy with this. What were some of the things that stuck out to you um, that you learned from Klaus Tuneman that, you know, maybe you use today that he taught you? With Tuneman, I think he teached me uh, how, to, how to listen to myself. That was the most most important lesson from him to me to to listening to hear listening to myself yeah? because before i just played the bassoon but i don't have too much so uh, an accurate accurate perception of my sound of about my intonation yeah? it was so good and he always said to me alexandre singing and play he he spoke that a lot of times for me because uh, when I, I played some pieces for him, he a lot of times he he, he said, "Okay, you are singing, but but you you are not speaking. Mm. To speak with you, with the bassoon, you you have to articulate better." Because before he said, oh, you are playing. But I cannot understand what mm -hmm. you are saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Could you talk to us about starting your life as a professional and joining the Sao Paulo State Symphony? Yes. I joined the Sao Paulo Symphony Orchestra when I was 22 years old. Yeah. Seven years after to to start studio basson. Oh my god! Yes, it was a hard hard competition. It it had I remember that about twenty bassoonists were there, but a lot of places actually at the at that moment were four places for basson. No, oh, there were four openings. Four opening places, yes, exactly. Wow. Yes, that, that was the beginning of the OSESP. Mm. Because this OSESP is the abbreviation of Sao Paulo Symphony Orchestra. Right? Mm -hmm. And this orchestra exists about 50, 50 years. But in 1997, they, they rebuilt the the orchestra, they, they revamped the orchestra. They, they, they made auditions for almost all, all instruments. Wow. Yes. And in, in that audition, I didn't think that I was ready to play in a 
professional orchestra like Ozespi, né? I may I make the made the audition, but not expecting that I will, I would uh, win the, the audition. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I won. I was very happy with this. And before Ozespi, I played in a lot of young orchestras. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I practiced bassoon like a crazy. I was practicing mm-hmm. about 11 or 12 hours daily. Wow. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend I don't recommend that for anyone. <laughs> yeah, really. And that time I was crazy for yeah, of course of course for the bassoon. And I was in the jazz side because I was practicing uh, jazz improvisation and all that things. Eh? And once I read that uh, the saxophonist Charlie Parker, very famous, eh? mm-hmm. the, the master of the jazz, he, he practiced for three years about 15 hours daily. That was my inspiration <laughs> to study too much, eh? 15 hours daily. Oh my God, that's so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a follow-up question for you. Okay. When you started jazz, did you start on the bassoon? Yes, I, I started okay. to play jazz on the bassoon. I started to jazz directly Is on bassoon. Is that unusual in Brazil? That's totalism. I think not only in Brazil, but even nowadays in the world. Yeah, <laughs> I like... thought so too. <laughs> 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 Did you have any encouragement for that? Did did anyone tell you, hey, you should try playing jazz bassoon? Or was that just something that you decided to do on your own? Yes, that is, uh, that is something curious. Because I was having classes from a very good teacher here in Brazil. His name is Francisco Formiga. Mm-hmm. Formiga, is he was a student from your teacher, uh, Jackie, the Benjamin Coelho. Mm. Then, as we know, Benjamin Coelho is a fantastic teacher. And yeah, Francisco Formiga take, took off the same way, same direction, same always very curious. Eh? Then we, we were practicing a lot together. We used to, to practice about four or the five hours together. Eh? It was very good. And one day we were looking for different methods to study the, the bassoon. Not only bassoon methods, but we would like to learn from other schools. Mm-hmm. Other schools. Eh? Then one day we went to a music store and we looked for flute met- methods, maybe to try that in, in bassoon, on the bassoon, and violin methods too. And we looked for trumpet books, and we we looked for the saxophone books section. And, and, and there in the saxophone books section, we found this very good, very famous book, the Charlie Charlie Parker's mm-hmm. Omnibook, which is the like the, the the Bible for the jazz players, eh? okay. and we looked for this book. Uh, I looked for my teacher and asked, him, "Oh, you know this?" And then he said, "No, I don't know. I don't understand." And you, no. And who is Charlie Parker? Do you know? No, I don't know. Okay. Let's look the the music. <laughs> and the music was total crazy with, with so much uh, much notes and very strange tempo marks like uh, 80 notes and uh, 320 BPMs. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's then, too <laughs> yeah. then we decide, okay. 
let's try that. Let's 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 buy it. Okay, then we we bought this book, and I went to home, and immediately I started to try to play that that, that music, and I did understand what would be this music. I, it was so amazing, and I just think, oh my God, what is this? What what is this music? And it was fun to play. Eh? I had fun to play. Then after that is way my interest in jazz music and jazz improvisation began. So if someone listening wanted to get started playing jazz on oboe or bassoon, what would you tell them about getting started and the opportunities that they could pursue in jazz? Unfortunately, many bassoonists and oboists have fear to play jazz, and many people also say that jazz is not serious music, but I disagree totally. <laughs> not only classical musicians should know the jazz, jazz world, but also the jazzists should know better the classical music word. I really like the point that you're making that everything is too separate. Yes, uh, I think every classical musician should know at least a little bit of jazz and vice versa because in the end, jazz and classical music are two styles that are wonderful universes and they complete each other, eh? each mm -hmm. other. Uh -huh. When when I studied in, in Berlin with Klaus Tunemann, a lot of people said to me, Alexandre, be careful with just playing because Germany, they are very conservative. If you play jazz for Tunemann, it will be not a good thing. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> he will make you that. <laughs> then I was very very be very be careful with this mm -hmm. when I was went to study in Germany. Right? Then once I had a class with Tunemann, we were playing a Vivaldi concerto. I don't remember which one, but Tunemann, he was a very good pianist. Not was, he, he is a very good pianist. He can oh. play piano very, very well. And in the classes, he always uh, played the bassoon, giving examples, and also in the piano, because a lot of bassoonists, in my opinion, uh, think too melodical, mm. forget to to play in the harmony. And Tunemann always, in my in my vision, he always playing the bassoon in a, in an harmonic way. He always had, uh, showed me. How to see the big picture? Né? How important is this? It's not just a voice lost in in the middle of the the forest. But when you understand the big picture, when you understand the harmony or what what chords are coming, what what are the changes and the voices and the the all melodies, it's better for you to play. And in one class. He said to me in a Vivaldi concert, he was showing the harmony, and he said suddenly, Alexandre, a lot of people think that jazz, jazz music is, was born in the 20th century, but was not in the 20th century. Jazz was born much earlier, earlier maybe in the 18th century. Vivaldi was a, a, a jazz player. Then he, he played in the piano a uh, 2-5-1 progression. And this Vivaldi concert has this 2-5-1 progression. And he, he said to me, look, this harmony, this is a 2-5-1. This harmony is the same of the famous, famous jazz standard, uh, Autumn Leaves. And it was the same. <laughs> then I was very surprised because Tunemann 
know too much about uh, jazz and okay i was surprised and he mentioned the jazz word in the in the class then and after that he was joking the piano and i started to improvise a little bit with him mm-hmm. <laughs> and at in the end of that that uh, improvisation tuneman just locked his tip call with his tip call lock like Santa Claus. Oh my God. (laughs) Was this belief that we can all learn from jazz as classical players, the motivation behind your book about blue scales and improvisation? Yes, I wrote this book uh, using the the blues scale because a lot of people that comes from classical classical world uh, when when this pop, these people goes to jazz, these people are a little bit lost because there are so many emphasis in in theoretic things and it's hard to to decide to not not more play jazz no? it's easy to give up when we emphasize too much in theoric things no? mm. i i made this book using the blues scale because the essence of the jazz is the blues right the blues scale uh, already has the, the magic sound of the uh, of this the jazz and, and blues eh? and with this book i wrote this with some exercises for people memorize the the scale and to to have a good start in the jazz eh? because if you if you think too much in the beginning you will be you will be too much frustrated when you memorize a, a single blue scale you are able to mess mess a little bit in a, in a blues tone that is already a good start i think so the career of a symphonic bassoonist i think is pretty straightforward um, and easy to imagine. But what does the career look like of a jazz bassoonist? Is there a market for jazz bassoon? And, you know, what kind of opportunities are out there? Yes, it's something new yet, jazz on bassoon. eh? But I noticed that even more bassoonists want to play jazz. I'm very... I know that a lot of people that want to play jazz, and I'm very asked about uh, my bassoon setup and, and what books I recommend. And nowadays, I know at least about 10 serious jazz bassoonists who dedicate their time to, to the jazz music, but probably exists much more yeah yeah of course and yeah the market is is growing up and i know in new york this famous big band this charles mingo's big band mm-hmm. were or the bassoonist uh, michael rabinovich plays there that is a red our way to put the bassoon in in a big band that that is already some something special, mm-hmm. and people people I get more familiar. Mm-hmm. People are more familiar with the bassoon on, on jazz eh? nowadays. And yes, but it's strange when I try to book a jazz a jazz venue to to play with the bassoon, even nowadays. I I call to do to the jazz bar owner, jazz venue owner, mm-hmm. and I say, oh, could you book for me a 
uh, a day for for me to present present with my band in, in your venue. Then he asked, he he replies, okay. And what instruments are in your band? Then I say, oh, okay, I play bassoon. Then all of them are surprised. Oh, bassoon. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what's a bassoon? Uh, what is a bassoon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very common. <laughs> You'll see. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Once I I played in a jam session in New York, uh, the Smalls, Smalls Jazz Smalls. Club in New York. You yeah, know I've heard that. of that. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yes, I played there. I think in a jam session about 10 years ago. And I I just said for the for the for the people, I want to play with my bassoon. And then all of them were surprised. Bassoon? Bassoon jazz? Oh man, we <laughs> never had this before here. It's the first time <laughs> probably. What did they say after you played? They said, Oh, just bassoon rocks. <laughs> Perfect reaction. <laughs> Perfect, man. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, what was crazy it was a lot of lot of people playing there and with drums and drummers. They drummers they they play always, always almost always too loud because they mm. are. Uh, familiars, uh, they know better how to play with saxophone. They when they say a bassoon, they 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 think it's the same just because it's a a wind instrument. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and they play total loud, total loud, too loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, to play with a bassoon in a jazz band, it must be, it should be amplified. If you don't don't have if you don't play amplified, you don't have too much chance to survive. Can you talk to us about the process of amplifying the bassoon? Yes, it took too many years. I read once that the the jazz band leader of the sixties is uh, Illinois Jacket once. He played in in London, in the Ronnie Scott Club, and he was totally frustrated because he couldn't be heard uh, with his bassoon. He played saxophone. He was very good with saxophone, and he also tried the, the bassoon. But he was frustrated because bassoon could couldn't be heard uh, loud, loud enough. I see. Yeah, that happened a little bit with me too when I was in the beginning with jazz bassoon because nobody at that time was playing the bassoon. Okay, of course that exists more people playing bassoon, playing jazz bassoon in 1993. But because the internet didn't exist, I didn't know other jazz bassoonists, you know? Right. Yeah. Then I had to discover a lot of things alone. And then I tried once just to play what, with just one microphone uh, in the front of the bell. But uh, the bassoon sounds not nice when you have just one microphone very clear, very close to the bell. Mm-hmm. It sounds too aggressive, too too bright, too... Yeah, it's not smooth. It's not smooth, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I spent a lot of money trying, uh, trying and buying new kind of microphones and yeah, it was hard, but I it was a a nice search for to for improvements for the for the bassoon to play with a jazz band. Then once I I tried to play with 
three microphones. That was a little bit too much, I think. <laughs> and now I'm playing with two two microphones. One microphone in front of the bell and another microphone in the middle of the basson, uh, very close to the G key mm-hmm. for the low register, G key. Very, mm-hmm. From this part from the basson, a lot of sound comes from this part. I don't know... <laughs> I can't not explain exactly why, uh, how, but a, a lot of sounds come from this part. And I think I made, now I make a combination using these both microphones. I use a combination of, uh, when I use for the middle microphone, 70% from my sound comes from the microphone in the middle of the basso. And third percent for the for the bell from the bell. And you can adjust that. Yes, I I have a I have a mixer. Oh. You, you must have a mixer. Yes, I have a mixer, and you can adjust this this balance. Yeah? If you don't have a mixer, you have no chance because uh, these microphones uses the phantom power, and to have. To have phantom power for the microphone, you have to use a mixing, mm. a, a mixer, mixer board. board yeah? I didn't know uh, that. Yes, a mixer board. And this microphone for 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 the the bell is it's a DPA microphone. The model is the forty ninety nine A, forty nine nine U. And the uh, other microphone in the middle of the basso is uh, is from Electro Voice. Is is the model is E twenty. It's very very good microphone because you can play loud and it it don't makes any kind of distortion. There are no feedbacks in the microphone. That's very important. It seems like solving the amplification problem is the biggest hurdle for somebody who was looking to get into jazz bassoon, right? So if you solved that problem, then it would open the doors for a lot more experiences in a jazz combo. Yes, probably. That is about, I think, about 50% because that becomes another instrument. The, mm-hmm. Your your microphones and mixing and amplifiers, it becomes another instrument. Then basso is 50% in this this equipment is another 50%. When you solve this, yeah, you can play. But it's hard. It took a lot of time to me. About, I can say, maybe after 10 years, I could be more satisfied. <laughs> yeah, it's never yeah. ending. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never end. But now I'm very happy, very happy with my configuration. I have no problem with this. Would you tell us more about composing and arranging for bassoon quartets and quintets? I started to write arrangements, actually, here in São Paulo, we started to make a bassoon ensemble because uh, before I had no necessity of to write an arrangement for, for bassoons. Eh? And yeah, because I play jazz and I love jazz, I would like to try jazz repertoire with the jazz ensemble. Then it was a kind of a laboratory for me because I could try my arrangements. My first arrangements were very weak, in my opinion, because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know too much about uh, orchestration or arranging. Eh? That I had to learn a little, uh, a lot how how it works for the, the bassoon ensemble, which was good because the colleagues of the bassoon quartet, quartet they had a lot of patience with me. Uh, like, for example, I could bring a new arrangement 
And if it if it was not good, I could take my my music at home and and fix what should be fixed. Né? And I had all, also the suggestions of my colleagues of the of the Basson Quartet. Then I improved a lot. I write an arrangement. And I studied arrangement with uh, with my jazz teachers, Roberto Sion, which is a very famous saxophonist in Brazil. And he, he played also with the famous Tom Jobim. You know Tom Jobim, eh? the composer of the girl of from Ipanema. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that. Yes, I know that too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and he taught, he teach me a lot about uh, arrangement. And yeah, I have so much fun to write arrangements, but almost all of my arrangements has a little space for improvisation. Uh, I write the chord symbols and all these things that jazz musicians know. And in a moment, I'm writing another book with more more of these things, eh? more, more with, with chord symbols and scale, jazz scales for, to help bassoonists to improvise. Eh? And now I, I'm writing a, a new arrangement of a John Coltrane tune, the very famous. It's, it's called Impressions, and another tune from Coltrane, a, a very beautiful ballad, jazz ballad. Uh, it's called Naima. Could you tell us about a favorite memory that you have had while performing? Yes, one of my favorite memory of past uh, performance was when I was in the Carian Academy in Berlin. I studied there. I had the opportunity in, to play to play a lot of times with the Berlin Philharmonic. It was amazing. And once I played second bassoon with my teacher uh, Stefan Schweigert. Actually, he was not my principal teacher in the academy. I was a student from Marcus Weidman, but I had classes with him too. And I played with him, and it was a concert, a concert with uh, Maris Janssons. He was conducting the Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. It was marvelous, marvelous, because all of my heroes... Uh, were playing together with me, with me, <laughs> you know, uh, Emmanuel Paiu, uh, Vincent Fuchs, uh, Jonathan Kelly, uh, Stefan Schweig, Marzians, oh, it's amazing. Yes, it was a good time. I also remember, I, I have a very nice memory from a recent concert in China. I played in China recently. Mm. Because my orchestra had a tour in China, mm-hmm. and it was in February. And in this tour, I had the opportunity to play both classical and jazz music. Cool. <laughs> yes, for me, it was a dream, because I always could for to, to do both things to to make something like that. And in this tour, I remember that the orchestra was playing uh, Sherazade from Korsakov. I was playing this beautiful solo. And a bassoonist from from China, Chile, invited me to play in a jazz club in, in China, in Beijing, actually. He asked me if, if I could play there because I was touring with the orchestra. Né? Mm-hmm. I, I will. I would be there. It would be an opportunity to play jazz. Then I said, of course, I want to play. I will do that. But man, it was so hard, so hard because I needed to play all the orchestra stuff and to have good reads to 
que o play well em em good acoustics of concert halls mm -hmm. and to practice jazz improvisation and to be ready to play with people that I never played before. It was hard for me. <laughs> it was not easy. <laughs> really, really, definitely. And not just that. Uh, also the effect of the, the time zone. Uh, China is 11 hours ahead wow. Brazil. Then, and on the day, I was sleeping. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Total crazy. Total crazy. Then, okay, I I I played with the orchestra. We we did five concerts in China, like crazy. Uh, five concerts in ten days with rehearsals and a lot of travels. We played in Hong Kong. We played in Beijing. We played in Shanghai. A lot of of place. And I had to organize myself to. To have a, a short, short rehearsal with the, with the jazz band mm -hmm. and configure my bassoon to be amplified in, in different with different kind of microphones and etc. etc. And, and play there, but it was nice. It was nice. They they said that was the jazz bassoon premiere in China. Wow. <laughs> Amazing! That is so cool. Yes, yes. I I'm very proud and very happy to to be part of this. And uh, the Chile, my friend Chile, the bassoonist, the Chinese Chinese bassoonist who lives in in Vin, he was there and he produced uh, a documentary of this concert. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, yes, 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 yes. It will be available, I think, after this month, uh, after June 2019. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I played, I played with, the, the drummer was from France, the bassist from Ireland, the guitar player from North America, all very good players. And we, we played uh, some jazz standards and some of my compositions that are part of my CD, the Entre Mundos. That is awesome. Yes, that was good. I played jazz music and a, a little bit of Brazilian music, you know? Uh, a little bit of actually from Brazilian jazz because Brazilian jazz is a little bit from different from the American jazz. It has more elements from from Choro and Bossa Nova. Right? Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what advice you would give to a young person who wants to have a career like yours? When you start to play bassoon. Of course, that is natural that we will start with classical music repertoire. Né? That is a must. And they learn very well all of the bassoon fundamentals. It's important to have a very good bassoon foundation. And not only after that, you can go to jazz. Né? That's my, my vision, my opinion. Because mm -hmm. It's very important to have the control of the instrument. If you don't play well the bassoon, when you don't know the foundations of the bassoon, and you start to play jazz, uh, sorry, but will will not sound uh, good because, in my vision, to play jazz, you have to play clear. You have to play with nice sound. You have. To, to play in tune. Why, why? I don't know why many people think that to play jazz is just play a lot of, <laughs> of scales without quality. Né? Right. That, that is very important that, that you have these good foundations to play jazz. Alexandri, thank you so much for having this wonderful conversation with us. It was such a joy to talk to you. 
Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, guys. And Jack, it was an honor for me. Thank you very much for being part of this podcast. We hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Be sure to check us out on our social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And hey, check out our newly revamped YouTube page. All of our episodes are redone as audiograms. We have playlists for oboists, bassoonists, our Mavericks, our live shows. Everything you want is up there. You can also find us on iTunes and Google Play. Galit, who's coming up on the next episode? I'm so excited about this one. It is a wonderful interview with Alicia Lawyer, principal oboist and creator of the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. So if you are into all of the cool new things happening in classical music, you are going to love the next episode. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.